Today, we are in our third of three weeks where we are looking at the battle that is waged by the enemies of God when God's people get their act together and start doing the work of God. Our first two weeks, we looked at the external attacks and the threats. We also, last week, looked at how the enemy works from within to divide and conquer. And today, we're going to look at the personal struggle that Nehemiah himself dealt with in the 11th hour. We have a perfect illustration for this stage in in this uh, story in our Boston Marathon that recently took place. We happen to live just two miles from the starting line. The Boston Marathon is is a world-class event. It's mostly downhill until you hit those four hills that culminate with Heartbreak Hill at about mile 20. It climbs 88 feet in elevation in a little less than a half a mile. Now, that's rough. But then you get over that, and then it's the next six miles or so to the finish line. Nehemiah and his other leaders, as we learned last week, have been going nonstop. They haven't even had a change of clothes. They haven't had a shower. They are exhausted right at the end, and very often, just when we see the finish line, that's when we are most vulnerable to attack because we're exhausted. So let me ask you a question. What would happen if in order to change up the Boston Marathon, that final two-mile stretch before you get to the finish line looked more like this? What if right at the end, guys come out with pads and you got to run through the gauntlet like you're some NFL running back? Well, that's what I want you to picture when we think about Nehemiah at this point. He's running with endurance, the race marked out for him, but right at the end, there are those that are trying to knock him off his stride, knock him off balance, and not cross the line. This verse should inspire all of us as we think about Nehemiah and the model he presents for us. Let's say it together from Hebrews chapter 12. Run with endurance, the race marked out for you fixing your eyes on Jesus. And so this is the question. As God has called us to a great task and as we are pursuing that, whether it's a personal ministry or whether it's as the people of God, how do we deal with the distractions, the sideswipes of the enemy and finish strong? How do we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus when there's so many distractions like Peter on the storm-tossed sea, being distracted by the waves and sinking. Or like the farmer in Jesus' parable who put his hand to the plow but then looked away, how do we endure to the very end? Let's read Nehemiah chapter 6, and we're going to first look at three temptations that Nehemiah faces. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies, that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message, come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, 
I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? But four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. We're going to call the first temptation that the enemy throws Nehemiah's way as the temptation of influence. These are the governors of the region. Up until now, they have not acknowledged the legitimacy of the Jewish people. They have not acknowledged the legitimacy of the leadership or even of the rebuilding of defenses for Jerusalem. But suddenly, there appears to be acceptance. All of us long for being accepted by people of influence, people that uh, we can rub our shoulders with. I have watched pastors distracted from a ministry that God is blessing immensely by even Christian opportunities to have more influence, to tell your story to other people, to write a book. Now, there's a place for that. There are definitely people that should be writing books and telling their story. And we're having some opportunity to tell our story to church planters and others uh, in terms of what God's doing here. But that's not our ministry, and we must not be distracted by it. And I have watched churches flounder after tremendous seasons of growth and blessing because the pastor was drawn away by even a good opportunity for the kingdom. Influence, boy, that's seductive, isn't it? It's the boastful pride of life that John talks about as one of the great temptations. What is his response? First of all, Nehemiah knows better than to begin filling his oats as a regional governor and rubbing shoulders with the other governors when the work really isn't done. The wall is finished, but the gates are not hung. First thing he does is remind himself that he's doing a very important work that God's called him to, and that has to come first. He kept his priorities. But then the second thing is, he recognized that even though he was being offered what appeared to be an olive branch, an ovation of peace, these were those who were out to harm him. Feels like a handshake, but it's probably going to be a stab in the back. One of the important things for us as individual Christians, but also as Christian leaders, is to know those that we can come alongside and work with who are not necessarily part of the church, as we learned from Paul in our first week, that there are those that we can work with and and accomplish great things for the kingdom, even though they're not part of the church, but there are others that we need to be discerning and know when they actually are going to work contrary And their relationship with us is like that statement, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. He doesn't fall prey to this possibility of gaining influence, gaining recognition. But then it goes on, verse 5. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written... It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, which is the Persian king, 
So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work, and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. We're going to call this second temptation reputation. Let me talk about this idea of an unsealed letter. Because official communication between governments and leaders was always sealed. There's two things about an unsealed letter. First of all, it's available for anyone to read. It's sort of like when an op-ed comes out as an open letter to a political figure. It's not really to the person, it's really to the public. That's the equivalent of this. Everywhere that went as it was being carried and delivered, it was read. And so the damage has already been done to Nehemiah's reputation regionally. Secondly, an unsealed letter is really a slap in the face. It sets the tone for the contents of the letter. They slander Nehemiah. It's character assassination. You know, even with facts that are undeniable, people can paint a completely erroneous story. Isn't that true? We assign motivation. We determine what's in a person's heart. We conclude on our own what they must be trying to accomplish. That's exactly what they did to Nehemiah. This is all invented. But worse yet, they say, this may get back to the king. Now, how, how would that letter get back to the king of Persia? if they sent it. So it's a threat of their well-being as well. One of the qualities we see in Nehemiah that we should all aspire to is that he was a person of deep and constant prayer. He knew what it meant to pray at all times, in all ways, (laughs) in all circumstances. He moved in and out of prayer just like he moved in and out of human conversation. And because of that connection to God, the second thing we see in Nehemiah is a tremendous spiritual discernment. He understood it wasn't just Nehemiah's reputation they were after. What they wanted to do was to so discourage them that they would become too weak to finish the work. And so there's two things that Nehemiah does here. First, he strongly refutes their story. And then because he knows how this could affect him as a leader and how discouraging it is, he says, Lord, strengthen my hands. I know what it's like to have your reputation destroyed. I know what it's like to have people look at facts and paint you as a person who is unloving and ungodly and dishonest. I've been there. And I can tell you when it happened, I just wanted to climb in a hole. And frankly, I did. I did for weeks. I know what Nehemiah means when he says, Lord, strengthen my hand. I'm too weak for the task. Unfortunately for him, he was in the 11th hour of his job. He didn't have time for a pity party. And so he said, God, keep me strong. We need to recognize that when people come at us and our character is being assassinated, that God knows. God knows the truth. 
Our reputation might be destroyed for a time, but God knows our hearts and our reputation with him is what matters the most. And we need to trust that he'll strengthen us in spite of that discouragement to finish the task. A third thing happens, which we pick up in verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple, and let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night, they are coming to kill you. Here's what's happened now. This young man has been hired by the enemies of Nehemiah to pretend that he's heard from God. He's a prophet for hire, and he set the stage like he's hiding in his house. And he brings Nehemiah in secretly. He checks the curtains, looks outside, shuts the shutters, sets the mood and says, look, God has told me that your life is in danger. And furthermore, God says that what we should do is go into the temple where you'll be safe. The urge to survive is one of the strongest drives in human nature. And when we know our life is at stake, it would be easy to say, yeah, for now, I'm going to go undercover. But here's the insidious nature of this. In other religions, the temple was seen as a place of refuge, but that was not true of the temple. The temple was the place of God's dwelling. When he says, let us go into the temple and close the doors, that word in Hebrew means the holy place. He's suggesting that Nehemiah go into the holy place where only the priests were to go. Because Nehemiah knew the law of God, he understood this. And here's something really important. God will never (laughs) instruct you to do something that's against his word. Never. So if people come to you and say, you know, I think God's saying it's okay to drop your guard here or to make this decision, you know, there's a lot of gray in this. You have somebody saying that and God's black and white, and that person claims to be speaking for God, that person's not speaking for God. That's a prophet for hire. See my point? So there's two things that Nehemiah does again here. The first thing he does is he recognizes that as a man of God, you don't run. Let's read it, verse 11. Should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Man, sometimes when you're tired, it's hard to have that level of discernment. Praise God, Nehemiah had that spiritual insight No matter how exhausted he was, no matter how close he was to the finish line, he had that insight to recognize this for what it was. It wasn't about his safety. It was about him being discredited. He understood that a man of God doesn't run when God's called him to stand his ground. 
Those are the three temptations. And then we get to verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God. Another prayer. Because of what they have done, remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. The task is completed. That brings up a whole new set of issues. The thing that he had set himself to do, that he had given his whole energy to, was now done. And this is often when we are most vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And I want you to see when we have succeeded at what God's called us to, when we have completed the task, what are some things that we need to be aware of? And we're going to begin reading at verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. First thing we need to remember when the task is finished is to rejoice that God will have the last word and be vindicated. The best defense is to stick to the task. They're the ones that lost heart when it was done because they said only God could have done that. And remember the things that we learned from Nehemiah's exhortations. God will fight for us. God will prosper us. When we are doing what we know is the work of God, God is in it with us and he will fight for us. No matter how much they scream and shout, people will be silenced in awe and wonder about that God who accomplished that through those people. What did they call them? Those feeble Jews. Remember, no matter how hard it is when we're pushing to the finish, when it's done, God's going to have the last word. Now we're going to read on. Verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him. He was also the son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Ara, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshullam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said, and Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. So here's the second thing to remember once the task is completed. The enemies of God will never give up. Now we move into this whole level of intrigue that will play out in the weeks to come where Tobiah begins to take advantage of the relationships, of the obligations of leaders, elders, nobles, priests, wielding his way in. He has them proponing for him. You know that Tobiah, he's really a good man. He's trying to get a seat at the table, but at the same time, He's writing letters to Nehemiah, attacking him. There are Tobias in every Christian organization, manipulating the people who have their sympathy, but behind the scenes, they're attacking the leadership. The enemies of God will never give up. They won't go, okay, you win. Will never happen. The third thing we see as we get into chapter seven is the following. 
After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also, appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Here's what I want to draw out of that. A third thing is to remember that the task is done, but the mission continues. Nehemiah doesn't pause now that the wall's done and go, whew! I'm going to take a long shower. Okay, maybe he did that. (laughs) Maybe he did that. But he didn't sit back and go, okay, everybody, just take a break for a while. He had the wisdom to ask two questions. What now? And what's next? As dramatic as the rebuilding of the wall was, it was just one piece in the mission of God And we're going to get into the final part of it as we go into next week. We need to remember that the task is done, but the mission continues. Churches can lose their momentum after they accomplish something great, build a new building, or accomplish something that took all of their faith, all of their resources. There's a tendency. The enemy can convince us to ride in our laurels for a while, to sit back and take a break. And unfortunately, some churches never recover from that pause. Wise leadership says, what's next? And moves us forward. And here's the thing. If you're operating in obedience to God and God is resourcing and blessing you, then we're not talking about burnout. We're only burnt out when we're doing this work in our flesh. And when we're not living in such a way that God created in the book of Genesis where we do meaningful work, missional work, and then purposeful rest, that whole cycle of work and rest, work and rest. When God's people are living God's cycle for our lives, when we are fulfilling and pursuing his purposes and he is empowering that, we're never ministering out of burnout but from overflow. Unfortunately, we can do the opposite. Pastors can be taskmasters and we can push people to the brink of exhaustion and then we give God the credit when in fact we've done everything in the flesh. But when God's at work, we can say, what's next? Jump in and be a part of it. What did he do? He appointed leaders because he knew now he had to set up a society. Godly leadership knows when they need to step in and lead strongly and when they need to step out and delegate to others who are gifted to do different things. We've been through those various seasons as a church in our five years. Now we're in a season of passing on the leadership, expanding the leadership. That's what Nehemiah does because he knows there's more to come. The rest of chapter 7 is a list of names that I'm sure Lou will be happy to read for you next week. That's not true. But let me point out some things about these names. This is the exact record of those that returned to Jerusalem from exile that you see in Ezra chapter 2. Why is that listed here? Now, I don't know why Nehemiah listed it here, 
But let me tell you something we can take from this. It's very interesting to note that Nehemiah lists all these people at the time in the work when Nehemiah is beginning to delegate responsibility. Isn't that interesting? Here are are two thoughts that I, I think we can get from this. The first is, everyone matters. Everyone matters. The wall was built and the mission continues because everyone does their part. We focus a lot on Nehemiah in this story. But this incredible feat was accomplished because everybody stepped up. Everybody matters. That's why their names are listed. Now, think about this second thought. Let me remind you that these names are listed twice in the Bible. Get that. Here's what I want us to take from that. Everyone who serves will ultimately be honored and remembered. In the same way these names are honored in Scripture because they were part of this glorious renewing of Jerusalem, in the same way they were there, there is another book that the Bible promises your and my names are in. It's the Lamb's Book of Life. And there will be a time when we finish our task here on earth. And those of us that are faithful will hear him say, well done. Wow. Everyone matters, and all who serve will be remembered and honored. We need to take encouragement from that. That takes us full circle back to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews reminds us of this great hall of fame of people that included the generation that we're studying right now, all these people who by faith accomplished tremendous things, faced incredible hardships. Then he says, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You see, you see my point here? We carry on the legacy of these good people who caught God's mission and gave everything to the task and are forever memorialized in God's word because of it. They are the witnesses as we run, so let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's finish it. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the encouragement of this. Thank you for the lessons we learned from Nehemiah. We want to be careful not to make him more than he was. He was a man. He had fears. He had struggles. He had limitations. But he had a great God, and he stayed on his knees before that God, and he stayed true to the vision God gave him. And through a mere mortal, you accomplish things that are immortal, And Father, that's what we want to see you do here in our church, in our lives, and in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.